Thank you, Brad. I'm a little more baritone this morning. Anybody else got that fun Christmas cold that's being passed around? Okay, first thing, for Sooner fans, very sorry. Minus that first quarter, that was a heck of a game, right? Some of you OSU fans are fine with it. We're both, we're orange and crimson around our house. So Amanda's an OSU grad and I grew up around OU football. So I hope you had an enjoyable Christmas. Was it good? Some time with family, friends. It was great. Who was that? We'll come to your house next year. Maybe watching some Christmas classics. We already know Esther starts watching Elf in September or October. Isn't that what she said? She sneaks the stockings out early. We uh, watched Elf and we watched It's a Wonderful Life and Amanda and Mia and I sat there and cried together. It's becoming an annual event. Jake was outside playing. So now we're on the cusp of a new year, aren't we? And we're filled with expectation for what God has for our Lords in 2019. Amen? And beginning next week, we're going to start a new series, The Kingdom of God, A Biblical Vision. I mentioned this, and we're going to explore together the kingdom of God in Scripture. And it's going to inform and fuel our vision moving into the new year, because at Our Lords, we're a kingdom community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus and so today is kind of a, a prelude to that study on the kingdom. I want us to reflect together today on one of the most stunning passages in the entire Bible. And it's Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, again, I'll have it on slides up here. Isaiah 6 recounts the vision that Isaiah had of the enthroned king. The passage urges us to lift our eyes to the Lord of heaven and earth. And it reminds us that all that we are, all that we have flows out of our vision of God. Passages like Isaiah 6 have a way of getting us outside of ourselves, outside of our own belly button, navel gazing, woe is me, looking at ourselves. So this morning, I invite you, church, to contemplate the greatness of God in this marvelous passage and recognize who you are, who we are in his presence. So let's look at Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. I'll read it and then we'll walk through the passage together. There's something inherently powerful about the word of God and those who teach and preach on Sundays, our goal is to walk through a passage of scripture. Nothing uh, dazzling, the word of God is dazzling enough, is that right? So when we preach and teach, we are doing all that we can to shine light on scripture and get out of the way. And so that is my goal this morning, is to have us focus our attention to shine light on Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, and for that powerful word to lift us up in the presence of God. Lord, we ask for the power of your spirit as we read this stunning passage together. We ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest on us, your church. Amen. Isaiah 6, 1 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord 
sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This passage is about Isaiah's encounter with the Lord on his throne. It's going to be a prophetic text for us as a community. 2019 will be a year of our eyes riveted on the king upon his throne. Seeing him in all his glory and being sent with all his power. In this text here, verses 1 through 8, we recognize three aspects of Isaiah's encounter. My goal is for us to recognize how Isaiah experienced the Lord and how this passage draws you and me into an ongoing encounter with the king. The first aspect here of this encounter is that Isaiah sees the king, verses 1 to 4. It's very interesting here. In the year that King Uzziah died, this is around 740, 739 before Christ. You can look at King Uzziah was not a very good king. Under his reign, the people strayed from the Lord. It's a common theme, isn't it, in the Old Testament? Good king, bad king. This is one of the bad kings. Some Jewish commentators say actually that when Uzziah died, prophetic vision returned to Israel. In fact, this chapter right here is viewed as Isaiah's call to be the Lord's prophet. This encounter with the Lord became the lens through which Isaiah viewed everything. Viewed the Lord, viewed himself, viewed the world around him, viewed the nation of Israel. And a contrast is, is laid out here between the earthly king Uzziah, an evil king, and between another king, the king of heaven, who Isaiah is going to elaborate on here. As with Isaiah, this passage here reminds us who's in charge. Not Trump, not Obama, not Putin, not Theresa May of the UK, not Xi Jinping of China, none of them. Only Yahweh and his anointed, the Lord Jesus, they rule, not these figures. So Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne Perhaps this was while he was in the temple. Like us, Isaiah went to temple, went to the place of worship, and we don't know if he was literally there that day or if he's seeing the spiritual temple. We're not sure, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is he had a vision. 
He saw the Lord. He caught a glimpse of the king. We know from scripture that no one can see the essence of God. No one can see the fullness of God and live. Exodus 33 talks about that. So who exactly did Isaiah see? It's mysterious. John's gospel said that Isaiah saw Jesus in John 12, 41. The scriptures teach that God the Father and God the Son are enthroned, ruling together. We'll explore this further in our series on the kingdom. The Lord is sitting on the throne high and lofty. He's seated. Look at this. We're still in that first verse. He's seated as a king in the posture of ruling and reigning with absolute confidence. And he was high and lofty. These two words are used for Yahweh in Isaiah 57, 15, and of Yahweh's servant in Isaiah 52. So the Lord is sitting on this throne high and lofty. This communicates many things, but one is that who we're looking at here is the transcendent king over all creation. He's higher and his ways are higher. But the passage is also going to show us that he's the imminent savior, that he's close, that he draws near to us to save us as Isaiah experienced. The hem of his robe fills the temple. What does this mean? Isaiah only gets to see the edge of the Lord's robe. Doesn't describe the Lord's face, does it? It's kind of from the robe up. You don't see because it's an ineffable, unspeakable mystery who God is. But we do see that his robe does what? Fills the temple. So there's this sense of overflowing, even though the Lord's essence remains hidden beyond our grasp. I love this quote. There's an Old Testament professor at Asbury Seminary who says this, the description of God's appearance can rise no higher than the hem of his robe. It is though words break down when one attempts to depict God. There is a barrier beyond which the simply curious cannot penetrate. The experience is too personal, too awesome, too all-encompassing for mere reportage. Each one of us must aspire to our own experience of God's presence. And that's what Isaiah 6, 1 to 8 does, is it draws us in to this experience that Isaiah had with the Lord. Verse 2, some of you already are wondering, what in the world is a seraph? The strange world of the Bible, isn't it? Strange and mysterious. This is... A majestic scene, the Lord is surrounded by these angelic beings called seraphs. The Hebrew word for this means burning ones. These angelic creatures that are around the Lord who dwell in his presence are on fire. Why? Because the Lord is a consuming fire and they have access to God to contemplate who God is and worship. Something strange here, isn't it? These are six-winged creatures. Is that strange to you? It's Jewish language that describes that they're covering their faces because the Lord's holiness is too much for them to handle. 
They're covering their feet because in the ancient Middle East, it was dishonoring to be in the presence of majesty and show your feet. It's even true to this day. You would never show your foot or the sole of your foot to someone important. And they flew. So they are using these wings to depict that they're in service of the enthroned one. And they honor and they worship. So the point of this is not to get lost in the wings and the strange words, but the Lord alone is exalted. He is the center of all things, is he not? Including these angels that are there in his presence at all times. I want to share something with you that I struggled with over the week, but I got counsel, talked with Rock and Wallace and my wife, and I wanted to share something because this passage is very near and dear to me. I actually had an encounter in 1989. Clear the cobwebs. It's a long time ago, but May 13th, 1989, my father's birthday, interesting enough. It was my last day of school at TCU, my freshman year, and actually my dad and Rock came to help pack up my stuff and drive home, and little did I know that night my world would be changed. We used to take a cassette, it was vineyard worship music, and we would put it in our little stereo, our ghetto blaster in the living room, and we would play worship music because we were so hungry for God, for the presence of God. So we put in this vineyard worship tape in the stereo and began to worship. In short, what happened was the presence of God filled the room. My parents were there, a dear friend of ours, Kay Zahasky, was there, and I was lifted up in the spirit to a place where I saw something that was mind-blowing. I'm just pause here for a moment. This is difficult to share. It's rather vulnerable. It's also in a modern or postmodern context where we're all so filled with suspicion and doubt and questions, including myself. But you know what? The Lord doesn't care. The Lord lets us encounter him at times and marks us for life. So I wanted to share this with you. So I'm lifted up and I see something in the distance, in the spirit that looks like an inverted tornado. By the way, I'm narrating all this to my family who's in the room, trembling with fear. I'm kind of shouting it because it's a rather wild experience. Was it not, mom and dad, they're here this morning? And at the center of this funnel was a throne. I still couldn't quite make out what this was. It was like a, a funnel that moved with Swiss clock precision. As I got closer, I moved closer, it was angelic beings. It was angels, innumerable. I couldn't count thousands of them forming this inverted cone around the presence of the Lord. I was completely overwhelmed. I was shouting, I was shaking, I was declaring the awesome holiness and majesty of the Lord. It was both terrifying and exhilarating. And after this, I ended up having a series of visions regarding future events in the church and the world, and the Lord called me to prophetic ministry. 
When I got up from the carpet, I knew my life would never be the same. Humorous note, my dad went and flipped the cassette tape back over and put it back in and went and laid where I did and he said, okay, it's my turn. I said, okay, if you want it. So when I got up, I knew my life would never be the same and the Lord actually told me that my life was no longer mine. I didn't know what that meant at age 19, but nonetheless, it happened to a good evangelical Bible-believing family. The next day, interestingly, my dad said, well, you are going to have to share this, whether you like it or not. And I said, no, I just feel undone. He said, we've got lunch with Scott Manley. Going to an Italian restaurant, you're gonna share with Scott what happened, you remember that. And we sat and he elbowed me and said, you gotta share everything. So sitting there sharing what had happened and I was pretty undone. After something like this, as good skeptical evangelical Bible people are, I searched the scriptures. Where is this in the Bible? And I found it all over the place, including Isaiah 6. And the fruit is how we measure these things, right? I'm sharing this because when the Lord moves, the Lord reveals himself to us in stunning ways and it changes us forever. So at age 19, I got up off of that ugly carpet and I wanted to read the scriptures. I had an insatiable appetite for the Lord, for the scriptures. I also began dreaming every night. It was like something was deposited in me and having visions. So why in the world would I share this? Rock and I were communicating on Friday and he said stories like this are biblical and they remind us that with God moving among us, things happen. We don't just read the Bible and say, wow, that is a nice thing to look at like a museum, but we expect God to move among us. This is the God of the universe that we're talking about. At verse three here, back to the text, we see that these angelic beings are singing something, they're saying something. What does verse three say? They're one calling to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Why are they calling to one another? Because they can't contain themselves. They can't stop the one that they're seeing who is truly the Lord elicits praise, unceasing praise, nonstop praise. When you see the Lord, you can't help but worship and pray. It changes you time and time again. What do they sing about here? It's pretty important. With a glimpse like this into heaven, what exactly are they singing? They're singing kadash, 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 Hebrew for holy. They're saying it three times. This is known as the Trisegian prayer in the Eastern Orthodox Church. They pray it all the time. Christians all over the planet right now are singing this in their worship service, in their liturgy, because they are looking at a passage like Isaiah 6 and saying there's something special here. There's a window into the very presence of God. Why three times? The Hebrew mind 
used things in twos and threes for emphasis. So there's a, a place in Jeremiah 22 where Jeremiah says, oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. So it's emphasis, but it also suggests totality and completeness. The Lord alone is supremely holy. In fact, Isaiah will go on to speak about the Holy One of Israel over two dozen times in the rest of his book. This is one of those words, though, what does holy mean? It's kind of Christianese, isn't it? Christian language. But there's something deep and rich here. It means that God is distinct from us and all that he's made. Can I put it crudely here? God is like the Colian diamond, the star of Africa, one of the crown jewels, 530 carats compared to a Cheeto. That's what we have here. The Lord is the most magnificent diamond full of splendor and excellence and supreme worth next to a little cheese ball. There is no comparison the Lord and his supreme holiness is beyond equal, without equal. Further, it speaks of God's pure character and actions. It gets very concrete. The rest of the Old Testament talks about this. In Leviticus, God says this, you shall be holy. Why? Because I am holy. So God is utterly distinct, but he shares his holiness, as we'll see. Some commentators see a reference to the Holy Trinity here. Perhaps. There are other places where it's more clearly revealed. And what's hinted at here, we see in the New Testament clearly spoken of. Jesus says in Matthew 28, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And there are other places where the Trinity is clearly revealed. Perhaps here we only catch a glimpse of that. Got to read this in light of other passages. Moreover, what is, what is the Lord called here? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the Lord of the angel armies, the armies of heaven. Like those seraphs that are there, he is Lord over them. All that is in heaven fulfills his word. And as the edge of his robe fills the temple, there's another word picture here. His glory fills the earth. The fullness of who he is permeates heaven and overflows into the world that he's made. Musicians and other artists, I'm going to invite you to meditate on verses like Isaiah 6.3. This is the music of heaven. And I believe that we will have music rooted in passages like this and suffused with the power of the Holy Spirit coming out of our Lord's in the coming days. Many young worship leaders among us, we will be known for this, singing scripture, wielding the sword of the word in worship. The Lord's going to teach us passages like Psalm 149, let the high praises of God be in their mouths and two-edged swords in their hands. So Isaiah 6 inspires worship that brings breakthrough, doesn't it? Routes our spiritual enemies and unites heaven and earth. Verse 4 here, the pivots 
on the threshold shake at the voices of these angelic beings. These thresholds were large foundation stones on which the temple doorposts stood and were anchored into. So this shaking suggests the awesome presence and power of God. What else happens here? The Lord's presence, the house is filled with smoke. It's the cloud of glory. The Hebrew word chabad or chabod. And it's a word that suggests weight. The weight of God's presence. The gravitas of his splendor and majesty. Isaiah knew that the Israelites had seen this before in the wilderness. In Exodus 13, they got to see this cloud. And it also showed up at particular days when they worshipped in the temple. Mike Milner referenced this a few weeks ago, that the glory was so strong in Solomon's day when they dedicated the temple that the priests could not even stand because of the glory of the Lord manifesting. The second thing we see in this passage, I wanted to spend most of the time on those opening verses, lifting up our eyes and seeing who he is and what's happening The second thing that this passage shows us is that Isaiah is cleansed by the king. Verses five through seven. How does Isaiah respond to this? Probably like we would. Woe is me. I am lost. And that word actually means undone. I'm disoriented. I've encountered something, someone. So Isaiah encounters the fiery holiness and blazing glory of God. He says, I'm as good as dead. I'm lost and my lips express what's in my heart. And I'm surrounded by people who are in the same boat. That's what Isaiah is saying here. The order is crucial, isn't it? Look at the order here. True self-knowledge, repentance, and humility flow out of a vision of who God is his greatness, his holiness, and this text shows his kindness. This is heavy stuff, but it really is about a holy and gracious, kind and loving God. I love this. The text also reveals that God shows himself to broken people. We have any broken people in here? The Lord reveals himself to people like us. He shares his holiness and purity with us. We fall short of his glory, but as we turn to him, he shares his glory with us. This is good news, church. What happens in this text? Another kind of strange thing. The Lord sends an angel to touch Isaiah. What is this all about? Takes a burning coal from the altar, from the very presence of God and touches Isaiah's lips symbolically. I love this. Early Christian commentators said that this coal prefigures the work of Christ. The one who burns with holiness and love, the Lord Jesus, comes from the very presence of God to remove our sin, our guilt, our shame as we turn to him in faith and love. So the point of these verses is that God alone 
purifies his people. God alone. What do we do? What did, did Isaiah climb up into? He didn't earn this at all, did he? He saw it. This whole thing was a gracious gift. I'm going to show myself to you. You're going to see yourself, the good and the bad, and then I'm going to take care of your guilt and shame because I'm full of love for you and for my people. This is good news, is it not? The Holy One makes us holy. This is the gospel of the kingdom preached in a text like this. To conclude here, the third thing that this text shows us is that Isaiah is sent by the king. He hears the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So Isaiah has seen the Lord. He's been touched by one of the Lord's messengers. And now he hears. Why in the world does the text say, who will go for us? I thought this was monotheism. I thought there was one God in Israel. First of all, by asking, the Lord gives Isaiah the opportunity to volunteer. He's pretty much been wrecked and undone. The Lord says, I love you. Here's grace. Here's mercy. Are you ready to volunteer? He could have mandated, okay, stand up, man. Go. But he lets Isaiah, in his weakness, say, here am I. It's beautiful. Why for us, though? We've seen that there is one God, right? And this is an ancient Hebrew uh, picture, a word picture that God sits among his divine counsel, the angels who are there. So in a sense, he speaks as the king, and he's saying, who will go for us? Who will be another messenger? So that is what the us about, this divine plural. That's not strange, though. It happens in other places, doesn't it? Can you think of another place in the Old Testament where that us, the divine us, is used? I hear someone saying it. Genesis what? Genesis 1, 26, the Lord says, let us make man and woman in our image. So this divine counsel. Again, some people discern the Holy Trinity here in that us language. Not sure, but perhaps. But what is clear is that Isaiah has seen the great I am and his response is, here I am. Lord, send me. So he sees the Lord among his burning ones. He catches a vision that the earth is full of the Lord's glory and he's set ablaze with passion and he wants to share the message of the king. So I've mentioned that Isaiah 6 is going to be a key passage for us this year. 2019 is going to be an Isaiah 6 year. A season with an Isaiah 6 perspective. How does that sound? So based on a text like this, this includes seeing the Lord enthroned, the king of heaven and earth, as we come together and worship, which we're going to do again. We had planned to have a little time to respond to the word of God in worship this morning. We'll see the Lord enthroned as we worship together, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we prayerfully read and meditate on Scripture together, here and during the week. 
It also means in 2019 that we'll be receiving the purifying grace of God in the person of Jesus. Does anyone need some grace? Grace, mercy, kindness from the Holy One of Israel. And thirdly, it means in 2019, we're gonna learn some things about being sent by the King, filled with the love of the Father, sharing the message of the kingdom of God as Jesus did, being clothed with the power of the Holy Spirit. So I invite you this week to feast on Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. This is some biblical filet here, isn't it? Ask the Lord to reveal himself to you, to your family, to our church, to our community, to our city. My prayer is that we would consistently see the Lord together and individually and that we would be sent by him. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. And Lord, I ask that as we move into 2019, that you would give us a fresh vision of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I pray that even in the next few minutes, you would allow that veil to be pulled back, that we would see you as the enthroned King of heaven and earth. Lord, I ask that you would release a spirit of worship on us and in us, in the coming days. We declare that you are holy, 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 and the earth is full of your glory.